guys hey man you guys are way more lively than the first crowd you guys got sleep or something hey if you guys want to stand we're gonna we're gonna enter in awesome hey we're super glad you guys are here this morning if you're in the cafe and want to come on in join us here. I just invite you as we enter in this morning just to whatever you need to do, just to posture yourself before the Lord. Whether it's just to close your eyes or just to hold your hands out before Him, just to a physical response. There's nothing magical about it, but it's just a, a physical posture to put your heart in that place to just respond. So Lord, we come before you this morning so good. Father, would you open our eyes and our ears? Would you soften our hearts to see and hear what you have this morning? Would you reveal your heart in this room to us as we engage with you, encounter you, and sing praises to your name? Father, would you be lifted high in this place this morning?
trust the sweetest frame, but holy trust in Jesus' name. Oh, oh, oh. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness.
power turned off completely and back on. If you would turn to your neighbor, you've been singing alongside and share a good morning with them. Good morning, North Star. Find a seat. I am so grateful for all of you. I'm grateful that we have this space that we can come and worship. I'm a music teacher, and it's just like a shot in the arm to worship with all of you. So thank you for coming and blessing my heart. Now to the announcements on my notes. Okay, good morning. We are so glad you're here, where we go to the missing, love the marginalized, and live as God's kids. My name is Corey. Been around for a while, and we're thankful again that you are here with us in person and online. If you are new or looking to get connected at North Star, we'd love to get to know you. There's a couple ways to do that. There'll be a QR code behind me for our Connect card, or you can stop over by the fireplace. There's all sorts of fun, interesting things out there you can look at and connect with someone. We'd love to get you a Pathway Journal or just help you give connected. <clears throat> this, um, also the link, is a way that you can give. We think this is um, worship is also uh, giving is part of our worship as we give back to God what he has so graciously given us. And here at North Star, that means at least 25% of what comes in, usually much more, goes back to lo global and local missions. Three announcements for you today. Here we go. For the ladies in the room, if you get your phones out and you scroll in your calendar to the thing where it says 2024, we wanna make sure that you have saved the date for our annual women's retreat. It is March 15th and 16th, um, but just thinking ahead, so that would be a great, we would love to have you um, be part of that. A little sooner is next week, we have our Surf Sunday and our food trucks. On October 29th, this will be both services, so if you're here but you happen to come to the first service, we will have donuts, and second service, the food trucks will be out there doing their things. Serve Sunday is an opportunity to see where you can serve here at North Star. One of the best ways to meet people in our congregation is just to serve alongside them. So join us, eat lunch together, and see where you can get plugged in. And then finally, also in that 2024 calendar year, um, today, after service, we have that mission info meeting about our, um, at 12.30 over in the Care Center. 
we have that. If you are interested in any of the trips, we are offering next year mission trips. So come and if you are interested, find out more about any of those things. You can go to our website, you can go out to Connecting Points, or I don't know, just ask me and I'll find somebody to connect you with. I'm gonna go ahead and pray for our service today. Dear Jesus, you are holy. We are so glad that you are who you are, the I am, the Holy One, the one we can enter into that throne room. I pray for our hearts today as we are listening to the words you have given David. Psalm 19, the last verse. I pray right now that the words from David and the meditations of our heart are pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, it was uh, 1906 in Los Angeles um, at a small church off 312 Azuzu Street when the Azuzu Street revival broke out. Now, there was a pastor by the name of William Joseph Seymour. He was an African-American pastor who actually had time in Cincinnati. He was a waiter as well as a biblical school student here in our city. And it was God using him to spark this revival. The revival drew crowds of believers as well as a lot of media coverage. And the reason why the media was so interested in this revival is because there was a controversial spiritual practice that was happening, which is called speaking in tongues. But also, there was something else that was capturing the attention of the world, is that this revival involved integrated racial worship services. And so what that meant is blacks and whites were actually coming together to praise the Lord. And that was unheard of in 1906. The revival quickly drew with crowds up to 1,500 packed into a small church on Azuzu Street. In fact, it got so packed, the story is that the front porch had so many people that it collapsed about a week into the revival, and actually a few people were injured. But it went on for the better part of three years, and during the peak of the revival, you had people coming in mid-morning, and then they would leave around midnight, take a few hours off, and then get going again. And as this revival was happening, let's just say it again, blacks and whites, not only just worshiping at the same altar, but there was something else happening which women were actually part of the leadership of this revival, again, back in that time, completely unheard of. And so led by blacks and whites, women and men, in this revival, thousands were saved. Thousands of Christians found their faith revived and hundreds were healed. Pentecostalism went on to plant roots in 50 different countries across the globe. And if you had to define it, people would say that this was a slice of heaven on earth. And the reason why I say that is because the revival was sparked by people who disagreed. Groups that were separated, groups that had never anything to do with one another, but because of this banner of revival, were now coming together under the name of Jesus Christ. That's revival. People who would never have anything to do with themselves coming together under the banner of Jesus. Well, this past week, I got back from a mission trip in Lebanon, not just up 71 North, but actually the country. <laughs> and uh, I went with our partner ministry, Call of Love. You guys may know we've had a ministry partnership with them for the past seven, eight years. And what they do is they reach Muslims across the globe in a lot of different ways. They've got a satellite TV channel. But one of the things they've started since COVID is an online church, which has grown from about 100 to 700 people rather quickly. And so we were over there taking kind of pockets of these people, having a baptism celebration, visiting with the families, and instead of just doing the online thing, but let's meet with one another in person. Now, this is my first time ever to the Middle East. I've never taken a mission trip over there. And what most of you know is that for generations, this area of the world has been defined by division, especially right now. You're watching the news, you know what's happening. And so just in the spirit of Azusa, I want you to imagine for a moment what would happen in the Middle East right now if divided people were coming together under the banner of Jesus. If you actually had Jews and Palestinians coming together under the name of Christ. I think the revival would be so strong 
so impactful, it would change the globe overnight. My assumption that the next step could only be the return of Jesus, because that would be so unheard of if you would take these divided people who have been divided for generations and generations coming together under the banner of Jesus. And I know I'm going to sound like a naive optimist, but I believe some of that is actually happening, at least in the country of Lebanon, because I saw it with my own eyes. I saw Iraqis and Kurds, and Syrians, and Lebanese, and Jews, and Muslims, and Christians all coming together under the banner of Jesus. Every single day, people were being saved. 18 baptisms. Wherever we went, lives were changing. I have never seen the kingdom of God move with such ease and power in my life. It felt like revival. I felt like God gave me this gift and I was so humbled to experience it. I kept thinking, oh my goodness, this is what we're talking about back in Cincinnati and I'm at least getting a taste of it while I was there. Now, a big reason why I had this experience is that throughout the entire week, I was paired with a pastor who I would say is probably one of the most tenacious, toughest human beings I've ever met in my life. He was a former jihadist, which means somebody who declares holy war. Uh, think of ISIS. He was part of that group and decided, I guess 20 years ago, he had a radical encounter with the Lord, gave his life to Jesus, and has been following him ever since. I've never seen an evangelist like this in my life. I just, I can't begin to explain to you some of the things that happened. But very quickly on, we're driving around Lebanon, and he starts telling me his story. And he says, you know, when I came to Jesus, the issue was that everyone wanted to kill me. I'm thinking our issue is finding a church to go to. <laughs> and he's got family, friends, everybody who's trying to hunt him down. He says, I was so depressed. I thought my life was going to change. Everything was going to become great. And so he pulled me up to this bridge and he said, that's the bridge. He said, Pastor David, that's it. I was going to jump off that bridge. I was right there at that spot. And he said he closed his eyes getting ready to jump off the bridge. And the next moment he opened his eyes and he was laying flat on his carpet in his living room. Does God do that? Does God teleport people off bridges and puts them into their living room? Well, yes, but you know what? It really didn't matter if I was believing him or not because if you would see the way this man lives his life, your only conclusion is something like that must have happened in his life or I wouldn't be seeing this. And so he's telling me a little bit more about, okay, so at this moment, I give my life to Jesus. Everyone's hunting me down. But now, now with Jesus, he seems to have absolutely no fear. And that was a big part of my week. I mean, we had a day, we actually had a day off at the very, by the way, Lebanon never goes to sleep. Like the people never sleep, nobody sleeps. So fine, the last day they said, Brother David, you're probably tired. Let's go do tourism. Let's go look at this cave. Let's go look at this mountain. Let's go eat this food. I'm like, that would be great. Like, let's just kind of hang out for a while. On our day off, my friend led five people to the Lord. Like he just couldn't stop. Everywhere we went, he's just sharing his faith. And I said, how is this happening? And he says, the Muslim world is ready for Jesus. The Quran says nothing, right? nothing about eternal life. It gives no answer. He says, they're hungry. He says, it's not me. He said, the movement of God has gone before us. All we're doing is being obedient. I felt like I was living in the book of Acts. What a gift the Lord gave me. Our first night there, it was about 11.30 p.m. and I was exhausted, hadn't slept on the plane the whole way there. And he said, are you ready? And I'm thinking, he's thinking, are you ready for bed? <laughs> He said, we've got a meeting, let's go. And so we go to this meeting, knock on the door, this lady opens up, obviously she's well off. She's about 35 years old. The apartment was unbelievably gorgeous. We step in, start having a conversation with her and all of a sudden we're watching her on TV. So not only is she in the living room, but she's on the TV being interviewed by the biggest talk show in Lebanon. And then it dawned on me after finally somebody explained it to me, she's the number one actress in Lebanon. Go look it up, see if you can find her. I don't want to say her name. Yeah, I was asked not to say her name, but you guys can find her. And so we're having this meeting, and you'll hear why in a second. All of a sudden, he's just praying for her. 
He told me she wasn't a believer. I didn't know what was happening. And on the way out, I learned that he's just leading her to the Lord, right? Followed up the next day. She's now part of the online church. And this stuff was just happening everywhere. But as much of those moments with non-believers stepping in the kingdom were so sweet and priceless, we also had moments of gathering with believers. We had three big church gatherings. We had a home church gathering of about 60 folks crammed into a room. We had a regular church gathering, much like this. And then we had a baptism celebration. 20 people who came in, most of them refugees, to be baptized. They were part of the online church, had never seen each other in person. And you can just imagine the excitement in the air to gather for that. But what I noticed in all three of these gatherings, each one of them, there was a little bit of a dividing line. And there was people there at each of them that were like attending regular church. And then you had another group that felt like they were attending revival church. And that's no different here. Because right now, there's some of you, you're just attending regular church. Like, I've been here before. I've heard David before. You're getting a little bit bored. You're tired of my hands moving like this. Like, right, you're just, you're just, it's just regular church. Your chair's broken. You get it. The coffee, you know, it's just the whole thing's normal. But there's some of you, I can see it in your eyes right now. You're starting to have revival church. You're leaning in. I can see some of you over there. Like you're leaning and you're feeling it. It was the same thing over there. It was the same thing. You know, everyone's like, oh, I'm sure you're going to come back and say, oh, the American church is terrible. No, it's the same thing all over the place. People experiencing regular church, people experiencing revival church. And so what I did is I went finding the people who looked as if they were experiencing a little bit of breakthrough throughout all the three gatherings. And as I began to talk to them, I saw a theme. I want to share some stories with you real quick and see if you pick out what they have in common. The first story you'll see behind me is we went to go visit three families, three Kurdish families that have been refugees. Can't begin to describe how hard it is to come to Lebanon as a refugee and try to get life just in order. And as they wanted to start getting connected with a local church, they realized because they were Kurdish, people didn't want them. Pastors who loved Jesus would look at them and say, hey, because you're Kurdish, we don't want you here. I don't trust you. Go find another church. So can you imagine that you come to a country thinking, hey, it's safe to be a Christian here. I can finally plug in. And they weren't allowed. And so they're sharing this story. These three young, and they're, th- they're by young 30s, these couples in tears talking about we just can't connect anywhere. And one of the pastors with us walked out of the room and he comes back with a basin of water and just starts washing their feet. And they wanted nothing to do with it. It was almost like radioactive water. Don't put my feet in there because they didn't feel worthy because they'd been told no over and over again from their brothers and sisters in Christ. There wasn't a dry eye in the room. Even I got emotional, right? I'll tell you what it was like. That's story number one. Story number two, you'll see two ladies behind me. They are refugees from Syria. And I'm just going to share part of the story because it's not very family friendly. But the woman in the black, I'll just say this, she had a marriage that was as destructive and abusive as they come. And so during the course of the abuse, she started having visions of Jesus, dreams of Jesus that happens a lot for whatever reason in that area of the world. And one night she decided, I'm going to pray to Jesus. And she just said, Jesus, would you have mercy on me? I can't take this anymore. I can't go another day. She woke up four hours later and her husband was dead. No medical issues. They could never figure out what happened. Now talk about pain. She's now walking around. Yes, she's got relief, but she's blaming herself for his death. She so believes in God, so believes in Jesus that her prayer was answered through his death. I don't know how all of this stuff works. She passionately loves the Lord, but she's still walking around with so much trauma, so much pain. The next picture, this is one of my favorite conversations I have with a young woman named Yara. And Yara talked to me about her journey to Jesus. She came to know Jesus around 15 years old. When she was eight or nine, she started having visions and dreams, but didn't know what it was about. And her family had to leave the country that she was in. And so they told her at this nine-year-old age, we're going to train for two weeks on how to walk around and over landmines, which was new news to me. You can actually walk on a landmine without triggering it if you know how to do so. So at her young age, she had to learn that. And the good news is they got out of the country, they got through the landmines, but the village they ended up in got attacked by ISIS seven days later. People were killed, her family did survive, and they ended up in Lebanon. 
And so she's now doing missionary work at 21 years old. She's in school. She's doing things with her life that are just so inspiring, but she's got a lot of pain and trauma she's still carrying around. And then the last gentleman I want to show you is uh, Mahmoud. Uh, we were hanging out at the, that's kind of the, the balcony of his house. There's always a good view everywhere. And he came to the Lord a few years ago and his dad found out about it. And his dad said, I'll give you a head start, but I'm going to kill you because you're a Christian. And if you get baptized, it's completely over. And so Mahmoud had had enough of the threats, got together with his dad one evening, put a knife in his dad's hand, grabbed his dad's hand, put it up to his neck and said, do it. Do it. If you want me gone, because I'm getting baptized tomorrow, go ahead. And his dad's hand started shaking and eventually dropped the knife. Mahmoud hasn't seen his dad since then. And his dad said, I'll tell you, I won't kill you, but I never want to see you again. And I don't have a picture of this, but the last family, I met a family of five. And when they all came to know Jesus, their community found out, came around them, grabbed them, took knives to their throats, ended up leaving a cut, but the Holy Spirit intervened. They all dropped their knives and they went away. We kept trying to get more of the story and there was nothing for them to explain, but they all pointed their necks and down each of their necks was a long scar from the knives that had been pressed across. My point being is I just, I couldn't believe the pain. Story after story of pain. And what I started to notice is that all these stories of pain were paired with these passionate followers of Jesus what it dawned on me is, God, you are sparking revival through their pain. Of all the things you could choose, he's choosing their pain to bring the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And that should make sense to us. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10 says, Blessed are the persecuted because of their righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. We've all heard it. We all know that. But my question that I wrestled with all week is, how does that help me? because I live in a wonderful country. And that was one of the great things about being there, is just recognizing like the decency, the democracy, the religious freedom we have, can't overstate the blessing of that. But we also live in a country where there's not this sort of pain and persecution that we find in other parts of the world. So what does that mean when it comes to revival? Are we out of luck? if we see so much of the pain partnered with passionate believers and we don't get to experience that kind of pain because of the blessings we have, what does that mean for the growth of our faith? Are we out of luck when it comes to passion? Are we out of luck when it comes to revival? And so that's the question I wanna answer today. And so let me pray and we'll jump into it. So Father, just thank you so much for what you have blessed us with, what you are doing in our lives Lord, just the overwhelming nature of your goodness is something that I just, I want to swim in forever. And so, Lord, would you take any just agenda, motive, just the flesh of myself getting in the way today, would you push it off to the side? We want to hear from you and you alone. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So we've been going through a series right now talking about some of the minor prophets of the Bible. It's called the Book of the Twelve. And in our reading plan, we're going to jump in later on in the month. You'll start reading through some of those books. If you don't have a journal, you can grab one right through the double doors out in the foyer area. But the Book of the Twelve, as it kind of goes through these minor prophets, your first thought could be, well, the major prophets are who I really want to read. The minor prophets must not be that important, but that's not the case. They're minor not because of importance, but because of the length of their books. Now, one of the minor prophets is a, a, a guy named Joel. And you guys may be familiar with Joel. He was writing to the nation of Judah, which is on the southern portion of all of God's people. At that time, the, United, the kingdom was no longer united. It was divided. And so he's only writing to the nation of Judah, the bottom half of God's people. And just like the rest of the minor prophets, Joel wrote to spark revival among a spiritually spiraling people. Now, many Jewish and Christian traditions disagree on the details of Joel's books, where Joel's book, where it gets really uncertain, is what Joel talks about at the very beginning. He talks about locusts, and what people can't seem to agree on are what are these locusts really talking about? Are they locusts, or are they prophetically pointing to something else? And so many theologians think, no, the locusts are just locusts. Not that exciting. I mean, I think we kind of hope and wish they were something else, maybe robots, maybe an army, who knows. But a lot of people believe it's just 
a group of locusts that come into Judah and decimate the landscape. And so what that means is that Joel wrote his book after a plague of locusts came to the nation of Judah and just devoured their crops, leaving the country in a very vulnerable, vulnerable spot. Here's some verses that would back that up. Look at verse four in chapter one. It says, what the locust swarm has left. They've already come, they've already devoured, and now they've gone on their way. Verse five says, the new wine has been snatched. It's been taken away, it's already happened. And verse six, a nation has invaded. It's ruined the vines, it's ruined the fig trees, and it's ruined the bark. That's exactly what a locust would do. And so if this is your view, whatever it is, whether it's locust or some sort of other insect, what we know is that the plague has already happened. Judah has already been decimated. And since it's happened, now Joel is saying, the worst is behind us, it is time to repent. Our response to this plague is repentance. Now, if you believe, as some people do, that the locusts are something else, what it usually turns to is that the locusts are a prophetic vision pointing to the nation of Babylon that has not come yet. Babylon will come, they will conquer Judah, and they will carry them off into exile. And so the two really main views are, well, they're just locusts, they've already come in, they've already devoured, or they haven't come yet. And it's a prophetic vision of Babylon who is on their way. If that's the case, verse one in chapter two makes a lot more sense. It says, the day of the Lord, the day of judgment is coming. It's close at hand. It hasn't come yet, but it's close, it's approaching, it's gonna happen. And so regardless of what you think, the devastation has happened or the devastation is on its way, the theme of Joel's message can be agreed upon by all people. And here's what it is, that God's people have turned away from God. And the only way that their faith and their land is gonna experience revival is if they repent which is turning our hearts back to God, taking our gaze, whatever in my life is focused on things outside of God and saying at this moment, I'm turning it back to him. You know, we've been talking in this series, there's five ingredients of revival that we've kind of researched. One of them is repentance, there's humble prayer, there's scripture, there's testimony, and then there is, which one am I missing? I'm missing worship, did I say that? It's on the screen behind you. Well, forgiveness is one of them too, that's true. But the whole point of this series is that God is the one who sparks the revival. You and I can't do it. It's the Holy Spirit that's gonna come in, it's gonna spark revival. What we can do is we can be intentional in mixing in these five ingredients into our world. Just mixing them in as much as possible. And that's really what Joel is saying to the nation of Judah. I want you to take a bag of repentance and pour it into the mixing bowl. This is what the Lord is calling for right now. The Lord wants revival. He wants to restore you. He wants to bring you back. But it's going to take repentance. One of the five, and Joel is really focusing on repentance. Joel chapter two, verse 12, here's what he says. Even now declares the Lord, return. Now the word return here in Hebrew is the word shub, S-H-U-B. If you take that Hebrew word, what you'll find is that it's also in there for the word repent. They're interchangeable. So right here, it might as well say, even now declares the Lord, repent to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning, rend your heart and not your garments. Now, why is he talking about garments? Because back in that culture, you would actually tear your clothing, rip off your sleeve, tear a hole in the middle as a sign of repentance, turning back to God in mourning. And what he's saying is, I don't care if your clothing is torn. Anybody can do that. Anybody can show a sign of repentance. What I'm worried about is what's really going on inside your heart. Have you returned your heart to me? That's what the Lord wants. We can go around and tear our clothes all day, act like we're repentant. It's about the heart. But Joel's message isn't just for the nation of Judah to repent, to turn back to God, but there's another piece of it that's just as important. He says, I want you to repent now. I'm not talking about next week. I'm not talking about when you get home. He says, I want you to repent now. Look at verse 15. He says, blow the trumpet in Zion. When they would blow the trumpet, that was their way of summoning everybody right now together. Declare a holy fast, which is an act of repentance. 
call a sacred assembly, gather the people, consecrate the assembly, which means set them apart for repentance, bring together the elders, gather the children, those nursing at the breast, and let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride leave her chamber. That last line says so much more than you know. Because if you were a newlywed in Israel, your first year of marriage, you stayed inside the house, in the chambers, in the room, and you didn't have to do anything. If there was war that was declared, and you are Rambo, and you just got married, you don't have to go to war. Stay with your spouse. Marriage was that important. We have to get off on a good foot. We gotta build the foundation of this marriage. There was only one thing that could get you out of your place, and that was repentance. If it was time for the nation to repent, I don't care if you've been married for five weeks, five months, even if it's within the first year, get out, it's time to repent. Even women who were exposed during nursing, grab a blanket and get out here, it's time to repent. And so whether Joel is urging the nation of Judah to repent after a locust invasion or before Babylon comes, the message is the same. And the message is don't delay with your repentance. Repent right now. So theologians can argue all day. Was this written after the invasion or before Babylon comes? It doesn't matter. The message is exactly the same. It's time to repent. Do not delay. Repent right now. Whether you're in freedom or whether you're in fire, repent now. Whether you're in freedom because Babylon hasn't arrived yet or you're in fire because the locusts have just invaded, repent right now. Whether you're in freedom in the United States of America or you're in fire in the Middle East, repent right now. Because if you don't, Joel is so clear. Go read the book. He says, if you don't, the freedom will become fire and the fire will become an inferno. And that is not some gross threat, that's good theology. Because what you'll find in every prophet, even John the Baptist, if we do not repent, things will actually get worse. And I know that teeters on, oh boy, are we going to legalism? Are we, are we talking a little bit now about this like workspace? No. Now maybe a better way to say it is we're going to miss out. You've got to repent or we're going to miss something that God has for us. You know, we were um, on a, a walking trip um, late at night and you know, my, my point of sharing this story, let me just kind of summarize it real quick. I, I think sometimes, let me share this first. In the American church, we are so worried about being fear-based because there's been so much wounding to that. But the problem is, is not all fear is bad. Sometimes fear can be really, really good. It can be a necessary ingredient. And so it was late at night again, and the guy that I was paired up with, the former jihadist, he said, hey, there's a whole entire family that's ready to give their life to the Lord. Let's go visit them. And it's like midnight. I'm like, okay, where do they, do they live far away? Like, how far are we gonna be driving? He says, oh no, we're just gonna walk. And so we head out and we start walking toward this apartment. And I realized it's a really sketchy area of town. And I finally turned to my friend and said, why are we the only two going? Like, what about your Egyptian friends and the people that are from you? He goes, oh no, they're too scared. No, just you and I, we're good. <laughs> like, why are you dragging me along? I don't even speak the language. And like all day, I kept getting these texts. Hezbollah's about to attack. Hezbollah's about to attack. I'm like, stop texting me that Hezbollah is about to attack. They're a bad group in Lebanon. But nonetheless, um, we're walking down the street. And after he says that everybody else is too scared, like my fear is white hot. I don't know what it was about that moment. The streets are packed, even though it's late at night. It was a sketchy street and my fear is white hot, but I tell you, my faith has never been higher. I felt so alive walking in that fear. I didn't choose it. I had no option. I didn't know the fear didn't hit until halfway in it, <laughs> right? I just want us to hear that great fear can be an open door to greater faith and you don't have to go across the globe it may just be sharing your faith at work, in the neighborhood, at school. It may be just reaching out to somebody who you're not sure what they think of you. You don't have to go across the globe, but let's find those places of fear, good, holy, healthy fear, and step into it.
So how will revival come to our country that doesn't have the same persecution and the same pain that's already landed in other parts of the world? How's that gonna happen? What I think is gonna happen is just simply through repentance. That's what I take away from Joel, is repenting before Babylon comes. Repenting before the fire is lit. Repenting in our freedom. And there's two parts of this repentance. I would say it this way. There's one time for salvation and there's ongoing for sanctification. Repentance, one time for salvation. Look at Luke chapter five, verse 32. He says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so the first time you say yes to Jesus, you go, I don't have a relationship with him, but I'm ready to say yes. I believe he died on the cross for my sins and he arose again to offer me eternal life. The moment we say yes and we receive that gift, that moment of repentance of turning away from myself as king to Jesus as the king of my life, that is salvation. That's one time for repentance. One time for salvation. Now, what happens is after you say yes to Jesus, we have ongoing repentance really for the rest of our lives. That sanctification is just that process of becoming more like him. Look at Revelation chapter two, verse five. It's being written to the church in Ephesus. So these are disciples of Jesus. It says, consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. It's not saying I'm gonna remove your salvation. I'm gonna remove your influence, your ability to shine bright for me. I'll tell you what, I repent about 50 to 70 times a day. I was like doing the math probably every 15 minutes. And as a disciple of Jesus, I don't repent to resave my soul instead to restore my closeness with Jesus. What it sounds like, it's just in my head, I will say something, I will think something, I will do something that's not honoring to God, and I'll just say, Lord Jesus, I'm so sorry that I just had that thought. I return my gaze, my heart to you, amen. Five seconds. Sometimes I'll even turn on worship music just to kind of wash out some of those thoughts that are lingering about 50 to 70 times a day. Now, you guys are way more spiritual than I am, so you're probably just 10 to 15, right? But it's ongoing. And so if I were to go and rebel against my parents over and over again and never apologize, never repent, I'd still be their son. They still conceived me. My mom gave birth to me. But it is going to mar that relationship. And it's the same with God. As we step into relationship with him, there's gonna be a moment, or there's gonna be many moments, where we sin, we have mistakes, and I don't want you to hear that you've made the mistake and therefore that relationship is severed, but the intimacy, the closeness, it's gonna to begin to wither and wilt, and that's why we repent, that's why we turn back. Father, I just wanna be close to you. It's not restoring the salvation, but the intimacy of being close to the Lord. When we repent, we're not flogging ourselves. I'm not talking about stepping into shame. We're actually boasting about the goodness of God. Because what we're saying is that God is revealed through Jesus and our relationship through him. We are loved, we are forgiven, and we are always invited to return. So we may not be sure if Joel is calling Judah into repentance during a season of freedom or a season of fire. But what is crystal clear is that revival will not come without repentance and the time is right now. Jesus says in Mark 1:15, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. What he's saying is I don't just want you to repent and just turn your gaze back on my good news. He's saying I want you to repent right now. There's no, de there's no delay, the time has come. And so I'm gonna invite the worship team up. And as they come up, I want you to turn your attention to the screen. Behind me, there's gonna be a script, and I would call it a repentance script. I want you guys to start looking at this. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna spend a few minutes just looking this over, thinking and praying, God, how would I fill in these blanks? Like for me, I wanted to share with you something like kind of a pedestrian repentance, but I wanna share something. I'm gonna go a little more vulnerable here. There is a former friend in my life that I want to fail, especially after this week. I just want him to fail. And there's two problems with that. One, former friend is not a good way to define him. 
and two, I should never want anyone to fail. And so I repent of wanting my friend to fail and I return my gaze fully on Jesus. He's my Lord and my Savior who doesn't define me by my dark, evil desires, but by his redemptive work in my life. And so I want you to take a few minutes to think that through and then I'm gonna ask who would be willing to come up and read this out. We're gonna cut the audio, we're gonna cut the video. Nobody's gonna know if you jump up here online. Sorry for the folks online, but we'll, we'll be turning that off. You guys can take a picture of this. You can write this down. It'll be on both screens. And you may think, why would we do that? Like, why would we repent in public? Because I think fear is such a great fertilizer for faith. And it's gonna be scary. It was scary at the 9 a.m., but it was sacred to see that many people come up and just repent and bear their soul. And I did ask him, hey, stay within the script. When you put what you're repenting of, maybe not as many details as you think you need in case it triggers somebody else. But it was a sacred, sacred time. When we repent in public, it revives, it restores, and it requires the kind of faith that accompanies revival. And so I just wanna give you a few minutes to look over it figure out how you would read this, how you would say this yourself. And then in a couple of minutes, if you feel the nudge, the pull, I'm gonna have you come up and share. So let's take a few minutes, think it through, pray about it, and I'll jump back up.